welcome to episode 111 of the People's History of Ideas podcast. We ended the last episode with the Red Army's conquest of the city of Qingzhou, these days known mainly as Chongqing, on March 14, 1929. This was the largest city that the communists had taken over to date. Chongqing had a population of tens of thousands and served as a regional trading center, with goods coming in from the surrounding countryside to be bought and sold there. It also had some small-scale manufacturing, including small munitions and clothing factories that were of particular value to the communists. And once again, the communists were operating in a majority Hakka area, with Chongqing sometimes referred to as the Hakka capital, although it's worth noting that the Hakka dialect spoken in Chongqing is not mutually comprehensible with the dialect spoken in the Jigongshan. Anyways, with the 4th Red Army's track record as a mobilizer of Hakka masses, to the point that in the Jingongshan it was often seen as a Hakka organization within the ethnically polarized context of the region, as we've discussed in previous episodes, it's not surprising that the communists found a warm welcome in Chongqing. This led Mao to start off his second bullet point item in the letter that he wrote to the Central Committee on March 20th by writing that, quote, the Tingzhou masses are excellent, end quote. Being a regional hub, Chongqing was in much more direct contact with the rest of China than either the Jingongshan or Donggu. So here, Mao was able to catch up on reading newspapers and get fully up to date on the goings-on in the world. Getting to catch up on the national news was such an event for Mao, who had been constantly behind in keeping up with national events while in the Jingongshan, that he mentioned this as the third bullet point item in the March 20th letter to the Central Committee. But catching up on national goings-on was only one of several very urgent priorities occupying Mao immediately upon the conquest of Chongqing. One other task that Mao took up right away was investigating Chongqing's political and economic situation and the customs and habits of the local people through holding meetings with people from different social backgrounds. Mao used the local party apparatus to quickly set up informal discussions with a variety of people, including revenue clerks, uh, people who had worked as runners, uh, basically messengers and gophers uh, for the old government offices, tailors, teachers, peasants, vagrants, and others. These conversations gave Mao an immediate sense of the local situation and also helped the party in formulating its initial urban policies for ruling Chongqing. Mao also set the party to work on immediately setting up its own power structure in the city. The influence of Donggu's secret communist regime is apparent and the emphasis that Mao placed on the formation of secret party and mass organizations in the area. There was a quick, secret recruitment drive for party members undertaken, with the local party branch tripling in size in just a matter of days. Twenty secret peasant associations were formed, and five secret trade unions. Of course, with so many people involved in secret activities and organizations, it begs the question of just how secret any of this actually was. Uh, this is especially the case with the election of a revolutionary committee to rule Chongqing that took place at a meeting that was held with people representing many different walks of life and which drew legitimacy, at least in part, from the idea of mass representation. 
Undoubtedly, many people knew about those aspects of the secret mass organizations that most closely touched their own lives. But despite the limited way in which secrecy could be maintained for trade unions that involved large economic enterprises, presumably it was hoped that the secrecy would provide at least some sort of buffer or hurdle that might stymie future repression more than being just totally open would. In addition to undertaking social investigation and overseeing major organizational tasks in the newly conquered city, Mao also immediately got to work writing two major appeals which were published on March 16th, just two days after taking the city. If I were writing these appeals, uh, they would have taken up all my time during those two days. Uh, And while I may be particularly slow, I find it a testament to Mao's energy and drive, uh, as well as perhaps his chronic insomnia, that he was able to write these two major statements while carrying out all his other major tasks of investigation and organization, which were necessary to quickly imprint a kind of communist order onto Chongqing. The first of these major statements that Mao wrote was an appeal that was titled, A Notice to Merchants and Intellectuals, and the second was titled, a letter to our brother soldiers throughout the country. The notice to merchants and intellectuals is really a perfect expression of how the communists thought about how their program of democratic revolution could appeal to and win over large sections of the petty bourgeoisie and national bourgeoisie. So I want to deal with that document in depth in just a minute. But before we move on to examining that text, let's look at some other details from the first couple days of communist rule in Chongqing. Judah's main task after the seizure, seizure of Chongqing was to see to the replenishing of the ranks of the Red Army. As we've discussed in past episodes, one of the main sources of recruits for the Red Army was captured enemy soldiers. Because the communists had no real capacity to hold prisoners of war for any but the shortest length of time, Mao and Ju's practice had been to give captured enemy soldiers a brief propaganda session during which the aims of the revolution were explained in very basic terms with a particular emphasis on how as poor men these enemy soldiers had been fighting on the wrong side, and then to take in the captured soldiers as as new recruits or release them to go back to their homes with a strong admonition not to rejoin the white armies. After the capture of Chongqing, Judah was particularly unhappy with the quality of the enemy forces that had been captured. After reviewing them as as potential recruits for the Red Army, he rejected almost all of them because so many were opium addicts and had been professional bandits for a long time, with the habits of criminality that a long bandit career tended to ingrain in people. The poor quality of the captured enemy troops was made up for by the local response to his recruitment campaign, with about a thousand local peasants volunteering to join the Red Army and a couple thousand more volunteering for partisan guerrilla forces and local militias, which were called Red Guards, with the Red Guards tending to be composed of younger men than the partisan guerrilla forces. Agnes Smedley described the difference between these guerrilla partisans and the Red Guards, which were formed after the capture of Chongqing, based on the description that Judah gave here. Quote, Everywhere in the liberated regions, squads of young peasants could be seen drilling and learning the difficult art of marching in rhythm. The Red Guards, a people's militia, 
were attached to agricultural production and armed chiefly with spears. These spears were often more effective than rifles in hand-to-hand combat in forested mountains. The regular peasant partisans were able-bodied young men, all of them better armed than the Red Guards. They formed a reservoir for the regular Red Army, but they fought only as auxiliaries, not as frontline fighters. Operating in the enemy rear, they waylaid enemy messengers and patrols, destroyed in t- enemy camps and communications, sniped in the forests, and carried on their own propaganda war by shouting to white soldiers, Brothers, don't be dust for the landlords and generals. Shoot your officers who beat and curse you. Poor men should not fight poor men. Come over to us. End quote. So, We see here the formation of this three-tiered system of armed forces, with a regular army, a partisan reserve force that also served to wage guerrilla war behind enemy lines, and a militia force of people mainly involved in agricultural labor, but who can be called upon when needed for various support functions. Judah also shared some memories from the days directly following the conquest of Chongqing that remained vivid for him eight years later when Smedley was interviewing him. This is how she recounted them in her biography of him. Quote, Many small pictures from Ting Zhou were engraved on General Zhu's memory, and of these he mentioned three in particular. First, there was the body of General Guo, which peasants came to see to convince themselves that their enemy was really dead. And as they stared, Judah heard them say, There lies the greatest scoundrel in the world. Um, And just as an aside, uh, his body was displayed uh, by the communists for three days there in uh, Chongqing to uh, prove to the people that uh, their oppressor had been killed. Back to the book. He also recalled the two small Japanese-made arsenals, which had provided General Guo with most of his ammunition. Of the weapons captured in this operation— 2,000 rifles and tens of machine guns were new and also of Japanese make. But above all, there was the factory equipped with modern sewing machines, Japanese made, which General Guo had owned, as he had owned the arsenals and which had made wet uniforms for his troops. The workers in such institutions had worked 12 hours a day, but now they organized their trade unions and established two work shifts of eight hours each to provide the Red Army with uniforms. General Ju's voice even became tender when he spoke of those sewing machines. They were a great thing for us, he said, because until then, all clothing which the men wore had had to be made by hand. But now we got our first standard Red Army uniforms, he said, smiling a little sadly at the memory. They were grayish-blue in color, each with a pair of leggings and a cap with a red star. They were not as fine as foreign uniforms, but to us they seemed very fine indeed. Some of our troops would go in small groups and stand in silence to watch the tailors operate their sewing machines. We had to evacuate Ting Zhou much later, but the arsenal and uniform factory workers went with us. They carried their machinery with them and set to work wherever we happened to be. The sewing machines went with us on the long march in 1934 to 1935, and the tailors often set up shop in the open during that time. 
they are still with us with their machines. At General Ju's suggestion, I visited this uniform factory which had been established in Yan'an in January 1937. The sewing machines with their Japanese marks were still there, and the tailors, now middle-aged, were thin, dark, and solemn men who merely glanced up at visitors and fell to work again. End quote. Each Red Army soldier was given two uniforms, which, as we can see from Judah's account, constituted a significant upgrade for them. Each soldier was also given five silver dollars in pay, which came from the fundraising activities that the army carried out upon occupying the city, which mainly con consisted of confiscating the property of reactionaries and collecting what we might generously call donations from the various commercial enterprises in the city, a long line similar to what we saw in Ningdu in episode 109. In theory, Red Army soldiers were supposed to receive a small amount of pay regularly, but in reality, as we've seen in past episodes, the army had been in such dire circumstances that pay usually could not be distributed. What this meant was that when cash was suddenly plentiful after capturing Chongqing, a relatively large sum was given to them, which presumably was meant to make up for back pay, which couldn't be given at the time it would theoretically have supposed to have been given to them. I haven't seen anyone write about this problem in relation to the Red Army, but it's hard not to think that in circumstances where regular pay is usually unable to be given, but then this is made up for when suddenly cash is flush upon conquering a city or town, that this sort of payment might, in some soldiers' eyes, have been seen as a share of plunder or in terms that are more generous and which might be familiar to some listeners and which would be out of place in the China of a century ago, something like a quest reward. Okay, so now that we've surveyed some of what went on right after Chongqing was captured, I want to switch gears and take a close look at the notice to merchants and intellectuals that Mao put together after two days in the city. In some recent episodes on the Sixth Party Congress in Moscow, we discussed how a big deal was made about how the Comintern and the party leadership conceived of the Chinese Revolution as being at a democratic rather than socialist stage in its development. But this distinction can often seem abstract. Here in this notice to merchants and intellectuals, Mao gives concrete expression to some of the policies of democratic revolution. And I think that this document clearly expresses the ways in which the communists saw the democratic revolution as being inclusive of and potentially appealing to some of the better off people in China who were not major exploiters of the peasants and workers and who also, albeit to a lesser degree than the peasants and workers, suffered from or at least had their aspirations somewhat held back by foreign domination and semi-feudal social relations. So let's take a look at this document, and I'll intersperse some comments as we go and at the end. Fellow merchants, fellow intellectuals. One, the Red Army, led by the Communist Party, has come to where you are. How is the Communist Party going to deal with you? How are you going to deal with the Communist Party? How are you going to deal with the revolution? Two, the revolution led by the Communist Party at the present time, is called the Democratic Revolution. It aims to overthrow three counter-revolutionary things. The first aim is to overthrow imperialism. Foreigners should not be allowed to perpetrate violence in China. 
China should be managed by Chinese, and foreigners should not be allowed to control it. The second aim is to overthrow the landlord class. The rent collection system should be abolished, and land should be fairly distributed among the peasants. The third aim is to overthrow the Guomindang government and establish a worker-peasant soldier government. These are the three great tasks in the struggle the Communist Party is now leading. Three, you should not be terrified at the enunciation of these three tasks. Not only should you not be terrified, but you should welcome them wholeheartedly. The worker and peasant classes long for the accomplishment of these three tasks, and you will derive great benefit from it as well. Do you understand your position? You are the petty bourgeoisie in a semi-colony. Imperialism is oppressing China, and foreign goods are constantly imported, so that Chinese industry and commerce have been unable to develop. Can you imagine how great the benefits to you will be when the imperialists are overthrown? The land has been concentrated in the hands of the semi-feudal class who exact heavy rents and interest, so that the peasants are extremely poor and the people in the countryside do not have money to buy goods in the city. Consequently, the industries and businesses in the city cannot develop fully. If the landlord class is overthrown and the tenancy system eliminated, the peasants will have the entire harvest and their buying power will be greatly increased. Just think, won't business in the cities enjoy great development? The Guomindang and its government are lackeys of the imperialists, and they represent the landlord class. If the Guomindang and its government are overthrown, the imperialists will lose their running dogs, and the landlord class will have no one to represent them. When the worker-peasant-soldier government seizes political power, then there will be hope for the success of the democratic revolution the revolution that eliminates imperialists and the landlord class. Don't you think this would benefit you? So, just to sum up these first three points, Mao's making a pretty straightforward appeal to the self-interest of the merchants and intellectuals and asking them to think about how they would benefit from the development of a healthy Chinese capitalist economy. Back to the document. Four. The Communist Party's policy on the cities is to abolish exorbitant taxes and levies and protect the commercial dealings of the merchants. During the revolution, only the big merchants, not the small merchants, will be requested to help raise funds to provide military supplies. The possessions of the reactionaries in the cities, the running dogs of the warlords, the corrupt bureaucrats, leading Guomindang officials, scabs, and renegade peasants and students— um, and here, um, just a note that on the, the, the way the Chinese has been translated, uh, renegade peasants and students here is meant to mean the equivalent of scabs, uh, but for peasants and students, um, since there's no precise, there's no way to express that as precisely in English, they, they just use the word renegade. So think of, you know, just as scabs or, or workers who break strikes, uh, these would be peasants and students who work against the interests of their, uh, their class, if you will. Um, okay, back to the document. Uh, will be confiscated. The possessions of the reactions in the cities, the running dogs of the warlords, corrupt bureaucrats, leading Kuomintang officials, scabs, and renegade peasants and students will be confiscated. The same thing will happen to local bullies who exact rents and heavy interest in the countryside, 
while they themselves reside in the cities. As for ordinary merchants and the petty bourgeoisie, their possessions will remain untouched. But these ordinary merchants and the petty bourgeoisie in general, who should support the worker-peasant revolution, accept the leadership of the worker and peasant classes, and strive together to accomplish the three great tasks of overthrowing imperialism, the landlord class, and the Guomindang government. Do not be two-faced, paying lip service, but harboring enmity within. You must know that the democratic revolution led by the Communist Party is bound to succeed and will succeed quickly. If you disobey now, you will embark on the counter-revolutionary path and will assuredly have no place to stand in the future. 5. The only way out for intellectuals is also to join the worker-peasant revolution. If the intellectuals are willing to take part in the revolution, the worker-peasant classes will always accept them, and they will be given more or less important work, in accordance with their talents. The Red Army Political Department is recruiting a great number of political workers— those students, teachers, and staff members who are willing to endure hardships and dare to struggle may all join the Red Army and do political work. 6. War between Chiang Kai-shek and the Guangxia faction has already broken out in Hunan and Hubei. The new nationwide war among the warlords has already been initiated. The Guomindang, which deceives the popular masses, has completely disintegrated. The three principles of the people are absolute rubbish. Um, a more literal uh, translation of what he uses, uh, what's translated here as rubbish, would be dog fart. And the unification of the whole country is stinking talk. The running dogs of the Americans, the Chang and Feng Yuxiang factions, the running dogs of the British, the Guangxia faction, and the running dogs of the Japanese, the Feng Tian and Yan Shishan factions, have begun a confused struggle against one another, purely for selfish gains. The collapse and defeat of the Guomindang national government and the new warlords of various factions is imminent. The revolutionary regime of the workers and peasants will soon emerge everywhere in the country to take the place of the counter-revolutionary regime. Merchants and students, all of you, all you of the oppressed petty bourgeoisie, rise quickly and help the worker and peasant classes to engage in this historic revolutionary struggle. Let the merchants arise and help the worker and peasant classes. Let the students arise and help the worker and peasant classes. In order to accelerate the development of business, the merchants cannot, cannot but support the land revolution so as to increase the peasants' productivity and buying power. In order to accelerate the development of business, the merchants cannot but overthrow imperialism and stop the import of foreign goods. In order to accelerate the development of business, the merchants cannot but overthrow the Guomindang government and support the worker-peasant-soldier government. As long as the merchants support the revolution, the Communist Party will not confiscate their property and will protect their freedom of trade. Let the revolutionary intellectuals join the ranks of the worker-peasant revolution. Let the revolutionary intellectuals join the Red Army's political department. Long live the democratic revolution. Long live the liberation of the oppressed classes of the whole country. Army Party Department, 4th Army of the Communist Party, Red Army. 
Okay, let's get into a few particulars about this document, particularly from this final point six. Mao's discussion of the new war that had broken out between Chiang Kai-shek's faction of the Guomindang and various warlords who had recently been allied with him can be a little misleading if you don't know the larger context. First off, it's worth mentioning that Mao's statement that the Guomindang had completely disintegrated is more sort of polemical wishful thinking than a real statement of what had actually happened, although you can see how someone might think that this is what was in fact in the process of happening as this war broke out between Chiang Kai-shek and his former allies. In addition to Chiang Kai-shek, Mao mentions four other forces in the field in the war that had just then broken out in China, which came to be called the Central Plains War, because that's where most of the fighting took place between March 1929 and November 1930. The Central Plains War broke out when a bunch of warlords who had allied with Chiang Kai-shek to complete the Northern Expedition in 1928 and, at least nominally, unite China under one government, resisted Chiang's efforts to consolidate power. To fully explain everything going on here would be a whole other episode, and maybe I should do that, I'll think about it. But right now, I'll discuss this point that Mao made in this document a little more narrowly. The first of the factions that Mao named is the one led by the warlord Feng Yuxiang. Mao describes Feng as a running dog of the Americans in this document. But Feng is a little more complex than that. We met Feng back in episodes 29 and 54 already. Although he ranged widely in his military and political maneuvers, his main base of support was in northwestern China. And in that region, he had been consistently allied with the Soviet Union in fighting other warlords in the area in a series of battles along the borders between the Soviet Union and Mongolia on the one side and China on the other side. And he had received copious aid from the Soviets in the form of advisors and uh, material military aid. When we last saw Feng in episode 54, he was allowing Mikhail Borodin to retreat through his territory to return to the Soviet Union, despite having received a telegram from Wang Jingwei asking him to kill Borodin. And while Feng goes on to both oppose and support Chiang Kai-shek at different times, when he dies in 1948, it's going to be while crossing the Black Sea to visit the Soviet Union in a friendly capacity. So, to call Feng an American running dog is somewhat misleading. And I bring up these details about Feng not so much to exonerate him posthumously of the accusation of being a sometime running dog of the U.S. imperialists, but rather to make the point that all of these guys who Mao names here, Feng Yuxiang, Yan Shishan, Chiang Kai-shek, and the Guangxia and Feng Tian cliques, all of these guys who Mao names here are not really reducible to being described as anyone's running dogs, uh, despite whatever alliances these forces had struck up with representatives of the U.S., U.K., and Japan. Now, Mao knew this, of course, and what he's doing in this notice to merchants and intellectuals was more like a form of denouncing and name-calling, as one does to political opponents sometimes, rather than trying to offer an all-sided analysis of these other political forces that the communists were contending with. The reason I bring this up is because sometimes people get confused about this. 
describing people as running dogs or servants or pawns of one imperialist power or another can be a powerful rhetorical device for denouncing a political opponent. But when taken seriously, it can seriously flatten out people's understanding of the forces at work, both historically and today, in various social conflicts. This ultimately leads to inaccurate analyses, both historical and contemporary. And it also often manifests as an unintentional but very real expression of first world chauvinism, in which the agency of actors in the third world are not taken seriously. Now, you might be thinking, well, I don't care about, you know, granting agency to uh, reactionaries in the third world. And, you know, that might be true. The thing is, if you want to have an accurate analysis of uh, things going on anywhere, uh, you need to actually contend with the agency of reactionaries as well as whoever you may happen to be cheering on uh, or supporting anywhere in the world. So um, the, the ad- agency of reactionaries is is actually really important because they often don't do exactly what uh, the people uh, supporting them or funding them in a more powerful country might uh, want them to do. Um, Anyways, given the number of proxy wars being fought in the world right now as this episode is being released, it's really not hard to find inaccurate commentary which ignores the motivations and cultural and social forces at play among local actors and which reduces events to expressions of the grand strategies of the biggest powers involved. Okay, moving on. Uh, Another thing worth commenting on in Mao's uh, sixth point from the Notice to Merchants and Intellectuals is where he describes Sun Yat-sen's three principles of the people as absolute rubbish or, in the more literal translation, absolute dog fart. Um, As we discussed back in episode 22, Sun Yat-sen's three principles of the people was the guiding philosophy of the Kuomintang and are usually translated into English as nationalism, democracy, and people's livelihood, although they can also be legitimately translated as populism, civil rights, and people's welfare. These are pretty vague concepts if left undefined, and when Sun Yat-sen and the Soviet Union formed an alliance, the Comintern gave Chiang Kai-shek a document which gave a revolutionary definition to these principles. Chang himself was totally offended by the Comintern's document, but Sun accepted it and enshrined the Comintern's revolutionary definition of the Three People's Principles as party ideology at the first Kuomintang Congress. However, after Sun Yat-sen's death, as we discussed back in episode 36, this guy Dai Jitao, uh, who was a friend of Chiang Kai-shek, put forward a much more conservative interpretation of the Three People's Principles and of Sun Yat-sen's legacy in general. And this more conservative approach to the Three People's Principles became the official Kuomintang ideology. What's interesting in this document is that we can see that Mao has, for the moment, given up contesting the legacy of Sun Yat-sen. For people familiar with some of Mao's better-known writings, this is a surprising passage, because later... Mao is going to be concerned uh, both with claiming for the communists the identity as true heirs of Sun Yat-sen's revolutionary nationalist legacy, and also as the more correct interpreters of the three people's principles. 
When the communists and the Guomindang form a united front to fight Japan, the three people's principles will be part of their basis of unity, albeit with each side interpreting the principles differently. And some of Mao's writings from this period, uh, in particular his important work on new democracy written in 1940, go on uh, at considerable length about the importance and relevance of the three people's principles. So it's interesting to see here that while Mao's thinking will change later and no doubt be highly influenced by the need for forming a broad revolutionary movement to fight Japan, at this moment in 1929, he seems to have no interest in claiming Sun Yat-sen's legacy and in fighting an ideological battle against the Guomindang over who the true best interpreter of Sun Yat-sen's three people's principles is. Okay, there's one final point uh, that I do want to address from this document. And it's kind of a big one. Uh, listeners may be surprised at hearing Mao talk about promoting uh, the freedom of trade of the petty and national bourgeoisies. Uh, here we must remember he's talking about the democratic revolution. And note uh, that he tactfully does not mention that the democratic re revolution was even then conceptualizing, conceptualized as being soon followed or, or as soon as possible followed by a socialist revolution um, during which this freedom of trade would disappear. Now, I could leave things at that, but this raises some questions for me and I think for other people about just how disingenuous or sincere this sort of statement about freedom of trade uh, by Mao was. Uh, but between the holidays and travel and getting sick again and again, this episode has taken so long in getting out that I think I will pick up here next episode and release this one as it is right here. So see you next time uh, and probably much sooner uh, than the gap between this episode and the last one. Take care.